As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, who shall prepare thy way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Mark chapter 1, verse 2 to 3. It is a foundational belief of our Christian faith that life is founded upon the bedrock of our participation within scripture and tradition. Yet how many of us can say that we have an understanding of what these two terms mean regarding the way that we live our lives? How many of us can say that we've seriously read the scriptures and wrestle alongside those who have devoted their lives to understanding the depth of their meaning? And ultimately, what do these texts written over 2,000 years ago have to say to us living in the 21st century? These, among many others, are the questions that we will be wrestling with in this weekly Bible study. My name is Nick Botsolis, and I invite all of you to join our St. John the Baptist community as we set out to meet Christ in the scriptures. And by wrestling with these texts and searching for their meaning in our life, it is my hope that we, like John the Baptist and all of the saints who have come before us, may continue to make his path straight. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another session of our St. John the Baptist Bible study, Make His Path Straight. My name is Nick Botzolos, and once again, I'm happy to have you all here with me. Christ is risen, Christos Nesti. So this week, we're going to be going through chapter 9 of St. Luke's Gospel. So without further ado, let's begin with verse 1, since this is a rather lengthy chapter, and I don't want to hold you all here with my rambling to begin with. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And whenever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, forsake Take off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So what we're seeing, first of all, here in the first section is a constant motif that's going to come up throughout this chapter. This chapter is predicated upon the faith of the apostles and the call of the apostles. And we can kind of extrapolate that to see what Christ is calling each and every one of us towards. Because whenever the disciples or the apostles are being mentioned within the scriptures, those are the characters that we're supposed to be mapping ourselves onto, in a sense. Those are us, for a lack of better terms. And so what we see here in the very beginning is Jesus calls the twelve together, the ones who he named apostles. And as we remember from that section, I believe, last chapter, Apostle means those who are sent out. So here is the sending that is going to take place. And we see that they're sent out with authority and power. So Jesus is giving them these aspects of himself, his authority and his power, which is over the demons, so the unclean spirits and diseases. So in the same way that Jesus has been liberating people from diseases and unclean spirits, the apostles are going to do the same thing. And so he sends them out to do two things, to preach the kingdom of God, so to spread the gospel, the good news of Christ's victory well, over death, as we're going to see, and to heal. So these are the two roles that they're given. And it's through this preaching that healing 
comes into place because they're not healing of their own accord. They're healing rather through the power of God. So God is the one who is healing through them and through their preaching. And so he says to them, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, nor bread, or, nor money. And, or, and also don't take two tunics. So what he's saying here is that you're going to travel and you're going to teach in the same way that I have been traveling and I have been teaching. There's no separation, we'll say, between what Christ is calling his followers to do and what he himself is already doing. We're going to see this motif again play out at the very end of the chapter when you have the three would-be apostles of Jesus because those three people who fall away are three people who lack the ability to be able to live as Jesus lives. So he tells his apostles basically not to take anything with them, not to worry about where their basic necessities are going to come because God, in the same way that he's provided for them as they've been traveling with Jesus— will continue to do so as they're carrying out this ministry. And we see here in verse 4, and whenever uh, whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. Um, and whoever, <clears throat> and wherever they do not receive you, uh, when you leave the town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So what we're seeing here is Jesus is telling people not, well, the apostles rather, not to go from place to place looking for status or looking for the best amenities. Rather, enter the house where you're welcomed and stay there. And then when it's time for you to leave that area, move on to another place. Uh, within a document called the Didache, which is the teachings of the first century church of, of how to conduct oneself, there are actually strictures for this with the followers of Christ. It's telling us not to look around from place to place, not to pop around and try to look for you know, better amenities or people that are going to build us up in terms of our ego or our status. We're called to travel as Christ was traveling. Christ isn't going from place to place looking for who's going to serve him the best. Rather, he's come to serve, and he's hammering this into the apostles here. And what we see in verse 5 is, you know, making a testimony against the people who reject the apostles by shaking off the dust from that place. Christ isn't telling them, okay, condemn these people whole cloth for rejecting you. Rather, he's saying, put distance between you and that land. And the sign of that is shaking off the dust from your feet. So shaking off the dust is showing that there is a clear cut, there's a clear separation so rather than them you know, standing on the hilltop as they're walking away from that town and crying out, okay, God, rain down fire upon them or something like that, what Christ is saying is, yes, there needs to be a separation. The gospel has been rejected because, again, the apostles are being sent out to preach the gospel. And yet, even though they're making this separation, they're not doing it in a dramatic way. Rather, they're moving on to continue to preach the gospel to all nations. And this also opens the door for repentance, because if the apostles turn around and reap vengeance on the people who've rejected them, if Christ has been doing the same thing throughout his whole ministry, well then 
that kind of closes the door for those people to be able to eventually return to the Father. And that's the polar opposite of Jesus' entire ministry. Because what Jesus' ministry has been, especially here in St. Luke's Gospel, is elevating those who are lowly, as we talked about in chapter 2, uh, chapter 3 rather, and bringing down those who hold themselves in high esteem. So the idea there that we hear from Isaiah's prophecy is that all are brought to this level playing field in Christ. And then it's from that level playing field, it's from either elevating the lowly or bringing down the haughty, that Christ then sets the bar higher. He shows them the kingdom of heaven and what we are called towards. So those who are in the pit, well, they're not seeing the kingdom yet. They're not seeing this very high goal because they need to be brought up first. They need to be brought to this level place. And from that stable level place, then they're called to this higher calling. It's the same thing for those who are elevated by worldly standards. If they looked at that higher calling and compared it to what they already have, they may not treasure that gift. Rather, they might compare it to the gifts that they already have and not see a need to strive towards a higher calling. So that's why they're brought low. Everyone is brought to this equal playing field and then called to this higher calling. And the way that we participate in that higher calling, the way that we participate in the kingdom of the Messianic age, is in the same way that the apostles are being called to here. They're being sent out, and they depart and go through villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. But they're not preaching of their own accord. They're not healing out of their own power. Rather, they're preaching and they're healing in the name of Christ, in the gospel, the good news of the resurrection. So moving on to verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the old prophets had, had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but, how, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. So here is a unique section for St. John's Gospel, St. Luke's Gospel, rather. St. Luke doesn't have an account of St. John the Baptist's death. Rather, this is the only mention that we have that John has since been deceased. And what we see is that the section begins by Herod being perplexed because he's hearing about all of the things that Jesus is doing, and yet he knows that he's killed John the Baptist. He knows that John the Baptist is no more. And yet some people are saying that John has been raised from the dead. Others are saying that Elijah has appeared or that one of the other prophets have also been risen from the dead. And so rather than seeing the fear that we saw in St. Mark Gospel of Herod, we see more of a, a curiosity, a confusion. And this is setting the stage for the Passion narrative, because in St. Luke's account of the Passion, we'll see that Jesus is brought before Herod, and Herod is very curious to see the things that Jesus is doing. It's more for his amusement than for an authentic yearning to be able to 
know, love, and serve God, something that Christ is continuing to call each and every one of us towards. So that's why the section lies here, not only to tell us what has become of John, for he's been beheaded, but also to show us that Herod is thinking about Jesus in this way. He's desiring to see him, but he's not desiring to see him to truly grasp who he is, but rather he's desiring to see him for the sake of seeing a magic trick, seeing how all these mighty things that he's hearing are coming about are actually taking place. Because again, as we talked about with the centurion, who's recognized Jesus for doing God things and not prophet things, all of the people are starting to question the mighty acts of Jesus. Before, you don't have prophets raising people from the dead in the radical way that Jesus is. Because Jesus has now raised two people from the dead through word alone in St. Luke's account. And we know that through Jesus' word, he's also bringing about all of these healings and all these liberations from demons. This is not something that was a trend, or rather a power of the prophets. Because the prophets do everything through the power of God. There was either a ritual or something else associated with the mighty acts that they were doing. Where for Christ, it's through his word alone and if we go all the way back to Genesis, we see that's how creation takes place. Through the word, through the logos. So it's through his word alone that all of these mighty acts are taking place. And it's through his word alone that we see this curiosity among the people start to grow. Because they're realizing there's a difference here. This man is not only a prophet. So they ask, is he John the Baptist? Because John the Baptist, as we remember, is the greatest of the prophets. He's the last of the prophets. He's the one who comes right before the Messianic age. And in fact, his narrative, as we saw here in St. Luke's Gospel, ends right with the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And the reason for that is because there's a very clean cut between the two. That St. Luke showing us that the age of the prophets has ended, and now the Messianic age has begun in Jesus' baptism. So there's a division to show us the importance of St. John's role. Because St. John's role is to prepare the way of the Lord. St. John's role was to prepare the people for what was coming. And we see the same thing with the prophets. We see the same thing with Elijah, because Elijah was the chief of the prophets, the best example of the prophets before John. And that's why we say that John comes in the spirit of Elijah, because John is embodying the characteristics of the greatest of the prophets. It doesn't mean that he's possessed by the spirit of Elijah. It doesn't mean that he's a reincarnation of Elijah, but rather he's embodying the characteristics of Elijah, who was the greatest of the prophets. So all of that's to say, this is why there's this questioning among the people as to who Jesus is is the things that he's doing are very unique and distinct compared to what has happened before. And yet we're going to continue to see over and over again as we make our way to the passion that people don't fully grasp what it is that's happening. And even the apostles are not going to fully grasp what's going on and who Jesus the Christ truly is until he offers his life for the life of the world and then is raised on the third day. So moving on to verse 10. 
On their return, the apostles told him what they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a city called Bethsaida. And when the crowd learned it, they found him, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God, and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to weary on, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the villages in the country around about, to lodge and get provisions, for we are here in a lonely place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. And there were about five thousand men. And he said to his disciples, Make them sit down in companies, about fifty each. And they did so, and made them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, and blessed and broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before the crowd. And all ate and were satisfied. And they took up what was left over, twelve baskets of broken pieces. So here we begin with the twelve returning to Jesus. So they've been sent out on their mission, and they return telling Jesus all that they did. Again, they were healing, and they were preaching the gospel. And so Jesus takes them aside and withdraws to his city. And as he's trying to take his apostles to a desolate place, uh, the identification of the city here is placed not to say that Jesus is in the city when he's feeding the multitudes, but rather it's to say the region where he is. It's just to identify the land. Um, but what we see is as Jesus is moving on with his apostles, he's taking them to teach again. The crowd learn of it and they follow him. So the multitude swarming around him as they've continued to do throughout this entire gospel account. So what does Jesus do? Well, he doesn't send them away. Rather, he ministers to them in the way that he's been ministering to them all along. He preaches the kingdom of God to them, and he cures all those who have need of it. So now we see, as the day comes to an end, so it's starting to get dark, the sun's setting, the twelve come to Jesus and they say, send the crowd away to go into the village and the country roundabout to lodge and get provisions for we are here in a lonely place. So again, this is the identification to us that they're not in the city, rather they're outside of the city. They're in this region in the wilderness. And so the apostles have compassion on the multitude. They realize there are these 5,000 men out here and other gospel accounts we hear this is not including the women and the children. So there are all of these people that are gathered about and yet they're in this desolate place which means they have a long journey that they need to go on to be able to find provisions and to find lodging. And so the apostles, fearing for the people, having genuine compassion for the people, come to Jesus and they say, okay, you're, you're the guy that they all came out here to see. Send them away. So that way they can go get what they need because we don't have enough food to be able to provide for them. Yet Jesus has a very, what we'd say, as snarky reply to them. He says, you give them something to eat. And so the twelve then question among themselves, well, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, so five pieces of bread and two fish. How are we supposed to do this? 
here's where we see, again, a major teaching moment for the apostles. Because the apostles were sent out a little while ago with no bag, no bread, no provisions whatsoever, and yet God provided for them. And so what Jesus is about to show them when he says to them, make the people sit down in companies of 50 and bring me the bread and the fish, what he's about to show them is the same thing that we've already seen through the Exodus account when God fed his people in the wilderness with the manna from heaven. He's showing them that God provides for his people what they need. And that is a lot more significant than just food alone. God has already provided for the apostles throughout Jesus' entire ministry. God has clearly provided for the apostles while they were sent out by themselves. And when he looks up into heaven, he gives thanks, and he breaks the bread and the fish, multiplies the food, and feeds all of the people, what he shows to the apostles is that true sustenance comes from the Father. True sustenance comes from God. And that's why we see at the very end, after the people are filled, and they eat until they're satisfied, the number of baskets that are taken up of broken pieces, so leftovers from this meal, is 12. And that's a reminder to the apostles that, hey, listen, not only are you sustained by the Father, but you're called to share that sustenance with the people. If we saw that Jesus says to the apostles first to bring the food to him, and also to go and make the people sit down in rows of 50s, what that's showing us is that the apostles have a role to play. They're ordering the people. They're leading the people towards Christ in the revelation that he is about to present to them, the revelation that God will provide for us what we need when we need it. And yet the apostles also need a reminder and that reminder is seen here in the leftover baskets. So their role is to lead the people to Christ, but even the apostles are doubting. Even the apostles are missing the mark in a sense. So Jesus is continuing to give them these opportunities where he's planting the seed and leading them towards the revelation of who he truly is. Because he has so much love for them and all of us. And this is how that love plays out. He's not giving them the answers to the test. Rather, he's giving them the tools that they need so that way when the test comes, those tools, those seeds, as we talked about last time with the parable of the sower, can come to fruition. They can fully sprout and maturate. And we'll see that in Acts. This is what St. Luke is setting the stage for because even though the apostles will fall away during the time of Christ's passion, they will return and they will continue to live out this call to be sent out and to share the gospel with all nations after his ascension. So moving on to verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone with the disciples, and the disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the people say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets 
who is risen from the dead. And he said to them, But who do you say I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. But he charged them and commanded them to tell no one of this, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. So what we see here is Jesus is off praying, a constant motif that we see within St. Luke's Gospel. He's connecting with the Father. He's communing with the Father. And what we see is that his disciples are with him. So it's kind of a weird phrasing here. He's alone, but his disciples are with him. So what that's indicating to us is that the multitude isn't here. His followers are there, yet you don't have the surrounding multitude looking for him to heal and cure and do all the various acts that he does with the multitude while preaching the kingdom. So he asks his disciples, who do the people say that I am? And the disciples regurgitate the same questionings that Herod has in that moment. Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets has risen. But then in verse 20, Jesus targets the the disciples and asks them, who do you say that I am? And Peter as chief of the apostles, as representative of all of them, speaks up and he says, the Christ of God. Now, as we've mentioned before, whatever the statement means of the Christ, there may have been a lot of different understandings of who the Christ was or what type of Christ he was. Because again, Christ is, it means the anointed one. David is a Christ in a sense. Why? Because he's the anointed king of Israel. And the people were waiting for another anointed one. There are some people who were in the belief that there would be two Christs. And that's again where we had this questioning from John the Baptist. Are you the Christ or do we look for another? Because there was this understanding that there would be a priestly Christ that would re-consecrate the temple and that there would be this kingly Christ who would liberate the people from their oppressors. There's also this understanding that people have, the one that I throw around all too liberally, which is that the people were expecting Jesus to be this military Messiah who was going to come in and liberate the Jews from the Romans. All of this is to say there is a whole host of understandings of who the Christ was or what type of role the Christ would play. And yet, there is no background until it's revealed to us by Jesus, the Christ, that would lead people to understand before the ascension, before the resurrection, that Jesus, the Christ, was truly the Son of God. He's not only a new high priest who's anointed by God. He's not only a king who's anointed by God to liberate his people. But he is also the son of God. God made man dwelling among us. Yet Peter is grasping at this concept. He's realizing that Jesus is something more than just a moral teacher. And so he declares that you are the Christ of God. And so Jesus, then in verse 21, charges them not to tell anyone. He commands them not to tell anyone the saying. Because 
as we see in verse 22, we see the first prediction of what it's truly his mission as the Christ is going to present itself as. Because we see that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So here is the prediction that Jesus makes first to the apostles of what is going to happen. He's going to be offered up. He's going to suffer. He's going to be rejected. And ultimately, he's going to be killed. And yet on the third day, he's going to be raised from the dead. While he's in the tomb, since he is God, he will trample down death by death itself. This is something completely foreign to those who are listening to him. And we're going to see this mentioned again in this chapter and again throughout the gospel according to St. Luke. Because the people, the apostles, those on the inner circle, they're not going to fully grasp what it means for Jesus to be the Christ. They're not going to fully grasp what it means for Jesus to have to offer his life for the life of the world until they see him on the third day risen. And he finally says to them, it's time for you to be permanently sent out. As we saw with Jesus sending out the 12 in the prior sections, they come back to him. They return to him. Their mission is a temporary one. But as we'll see when we get to the book of Acts, the mission of the apostles and the mission of all Christians isn't a temporary mission. We're not called temporarily to be sent out and to make disciples of all nations. But through our baptism, we are committing to every minute every second of every day carry that cross and do the Lord's will. And this is made all the more clear as we move into verse 23. And he said to all, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake, he will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my word, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. But I tell you, truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. So if the Christ is to suffer, if the Christ is to die ultimately being nailed to a cross, what are his followers to do? Well, he says, if any man, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily, which is the insertion that St. Luke has. So this is a continual process. We are continually renewing that vow. We're continually taking on the burdens that present themselves to us in our life. And in doing so, we are following after Jesus. A beautiful icon of this that you could think of is Christ is carrying his cross at the head of us, and yet we are all behind him. So when we look up, even though we're being weighed down by this weight, we see Christ carrying his cross and being weighed down by the same. He's co-suffering with us. We are not alone in that journey. 
And this is something that we are called to do if we call ourselves Christians, if we have the name of Christ on us. For whoever will save his life, we see, will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake, that is, those who are martyred, those who offer their life for the sake of Christ, in the name of Christ, will ultimately, even though they lose their life, even though they lose what they perceive as being most valued, what they gain is so much better. And that's why we see in verse 25, Christ says, For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his life? Well, if we gain the whole world, that is, if we gain all the physical means of this age and yet have forfeited being participants within the messianic kingdom, the kingdom of God, well, then what have we truly gained? We haven't gained much because everything in this age, everything in this world will fade with time. That's just how matter works, is matter will deteriorate. And yet, what Christ is telling us here is if we live a life in him, if we're striving towards the kingdom of God, if we're orienting ourselves towards this higher call, well then what we will receive is true joy. What we will receive is true fulfillment. And yet, what does that require? Well, this requires for us to not be ashamed of Christ or his words. And why is this put here? Well, because it's shameful for somebody to be crucified. It's shameful for somebody to be killed for being a felon, for being a robber, for being a treasonous person. And yet Christ is the one who's shamefully beaten. Christ is the one who's shamefully killed and cast outside of the city. And yet we hold him and his crucifixion at the core of our faith. We need to realize that we take for granted the crosses that are around our necks as Christians. We associate the symbol with our faith. But for the first century Christian Jew at that point, their association with the cross was death. Their association with the cross was a symbol of torture. But it's only through Christ offering his life on the cross that that symbol of death is transformed into a symbol of eternal life. If Christ doesn't look at the ugliness that comes around with the reality of death, of corruption, of his own suffering, and every emotion and feeling that comes along with that experience of physical suffering and death, well then, he would not be able to truly offer his life in the way that he does as a perfect sacrifice, as a perfect offering. And if that was the case, there would be no business of him asking us to do the same. But rather, he has transformed this implement of death by tackling it head-on, by looking at the ugliness of it, ascending it ultimately, and offering his life. It's through his blood that purification takes place. Because he is the only pure one. He is the only sinless one. And when he dies unjustly on the cross, rather than reaping vengeance on us for what we did as humanity... 
His blood is used as a purification. His blood is used to offer us eternal life. And it's in that same blood that we as Christians commune every single week. It's in his same body, which is broken for us, that we commune in every single week as a reminder that death has been trampled down by death itself and those in the tomb have been granted eternal life. It doesn't end here. We are offered so much more. But for us to be able to obtain eternity, for us to be able to live this life in Christ in the same way that he faced the ugliness of this world, the death, destruction, pain, the suffering, all of these things that we all experience, we are as well called to carry our cross. We are as well called to face the reality of suffering, the reality of pain, the reality of all of these things that there is no lack of if we open our eyes and look at the world around us, if we open our eyes and look at our own lives. And yet, even though it's hard, even though we can be in the lowest pit, we are called to reorient ourselves. We are called to orient ourselves towards Christ, to pick up that cross, offer it to him, and allow for him to transform it. We may fall short. To be honest, we will constantly fall short. And that's why we have this insertion by Luke that we're called to do this daily. We're called to do this continually because we will always fall short of the kingdom of heaven. Yet regardless of that fact, we are called to move forward. We are called to carry that cross. And we are ultimately called to follow in the footsteps of Christ, embodying his characteristics, living a life as he lived, and ultimately, if we are called to, dying a death as he did. So moving on to verse 28. Now about eight, eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his countenance was altered and his raiment became dazzling white. And behold, two men talked with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, and when they wakened, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is well for us to be here. Let us make three booths, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he said this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And the voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. So here we see, after eight days had passed, Peter, James, and John, the big three, the inner circle of the inner circle, the ones who saw Jesus raise Jairus' daughter from the dead, are brought with Jesus as Jesus ascends a mountain to pray. 
here in this ascent, so Jesus and his disciples going up a mountain, we need to remember the symbology of ascension. When we see this motif of ascension, this motif of going up a mountain or going to an elevated place, that should be keying us in that something revelatory is about to take place. There's going to be a theophonic revelation that takes place. And an example of this that we've already seen was way back in chapter 1 of St. Luke's Gospel when Mary rose with haste and went up into the hill country. Because of the theophany, the revelation of God that she brought with her when she went to go visit Elizabeth, was the proclamation that John sensed first in Elizabeth's womb that the Christ was truly incarnate, the Christ was truly going to be born. So in the same way that we saw that revelation of the incarnation of God brought to humanity, we see another revelation of Christ about to take place as they're ascending this mountain, as they're ascending the mountain to pray, to connect with the Father. And we see that as Jesus is praying, his appearance changes. His countenance alters and his clothes become dazzling white. And what we see is there are two people on either side of him, Moses and Elijah. Now, there's a lot that we can say about what Moses and Elijah symbolize, because they symbolize the law, Moses, who is the lawgiver. And they can uh, and Elijah can symbolize the prophets, of which he was the greatest, as we mentioned before. They can both symbolize the living and the dead, because Moses died, and yet his body was taken by God. And Elijah never died. Rather, he was ascended bodily into heaven. But what's important for us to see here is that within Moses and Elijah, we see that all humanity is brought into the heavenly council. So they're sitting, or standing rather, among Christ as peers. They see Christ and they're discussing with him his exodus, what's going to happen, his departure, so his, his coming death. And yet they have this grasp, if you will, over what is coming that the apostles themselves don't even understand because it's been revealed to them what it is that's coming. And the reason why that's important is because that shows us the calling that we're all called to, because we're all called to be able to sit among God. We're all called to be able to commune with God in the same way that we see Moses and Elijah communing with God. And yet that's something that's difficult. That's something that requires maybe a lifetime of self-sacrifice to be able to obtain. And we see that Peter, as he wakes up and sees Jesus, is also guilty of not fully grasping what's going on here. Because he sees this beautiful vision. He sees that Christ is different, which is a foreshadowing of what's to come in his resurrected body. Because when Christ raises from the dead, there's something different about him. And so Peter recognizes that this is good. He sees his master. He sees Moses and Elijah. And he says, let's stay here. Let me make booths for you so we can all stay here together. And yet, as we see this theophonic glory cloud of God descend, 
a motif that you saw constantly in the Old Testament within the temple, at least the first temple. The voice that comes out from that cloud says, this is my son, my chosen, listen to him. Christ is not correcting his followers directly here, but rather through the voice of God that comes through the cloud, what God is telling his disciples, what God is telling his followers, is to be attentive to what is coming. Because the Christ needs to return. Yes, they have been given this great gift. Yes, they have been given this experience of God. But now, they need to descend that mountain. They're not meant to hide this light under a basket and keep it for themselves. Rather, they're meant to share this revelation. They're meant to share this gift that they've been given with all nations. And yet we see at the very end in verse 36, after the voice had spoken and Jesus is found alone, they keep silent and told no one in those days anything of what had been seen. So they don't fully grasp what has happened. They're afraid because they've had this direct experience of God. And again, whenever we have this experience of God from humanity, well, the first instinct that's experienced is fear. And so in these days, that is, before Christ's passion, they tell none of this to anyone. In the same way that Christ told them when they saw Jairus' daughter being risen from the dead, not to tell this to anyone. The time has not yet come. The passion still needs to take place for Christ's full revelation of who he is to be made manifest. And yet when the time comes for the apostles to share this great news, they will live up to that calling. So moving on to verse 37. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried, Teacher, I beg you to look upon my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him till he foams and, shatter, and <clears throat> shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and perverse generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon tore him and convulsed him. And Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. So as Jesus is descending this mountain, he's met by the crowd. So the multitude find him immediately. And we see, behold, a man from the crowd cries out, Teacher, I beg you to look upon my son, for he is my only child. And his son is an epileptic. His son is possessed by a spirit that seizes him, and suddenly he suddenly cries out and convulses. It's very interesting here that we see the word spirit used without unclean being attached to it or demon being directly attached to it so there's an identification here that there's something clinical happening again as we talked about in the past saint luke 
makes a distinction between demonic possession, so demonic oppression, and illness. And what we see here is there's kind of a vagueness at play with seizures, at least his interpretation of seizures. But as we've talked about before, a spirit is a motivating principle, an animating principle, if you will. So there's always a spirit behind something may not be in the sense that we often think of when we hear spirit is we think of an apparition, we think of some type of entity. But if we think about a spirit as, again, this type of animating principle, well then that helps us to frame what is it that's happening. So behind every illness, there is a spirit, if you will. There is something that is moving that illness into play. And yet, in the same vein, there are these unclean spirits, these impure spirits that are trying to lead us astray. They're trying to lead us towards themselves and away from Christ. So that might not be very clear, but it's vague for a reason here. And so the first response that Jesus has when he sees that this boy was not able to be healed by the apostles as he cries out, O faithless and perverse generation, how long am I to be with you and how long am I to bear with you? Again, if we talk about this motif of this age versus the messianic age, we understand that this age is the age overcome by sin. We understand that the motif of this age indicates existence detached in some way from Christ. Because if we're living a life in Christ, then we're becoming participants in the Messianic age. This is what the apostles have been called to do. If we remember all the way back, they were sent out. They were able to do mighty acts. They were healing and preaching the gospel. And yet here, their faith is starting to wean. Jesus has been away from them for a day. As overnight, he's been up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John. And yet, when this boy is brought to them, they are unable to heal him. They are unable to cure him of this infirmity, even though at the beginning of the chapter, they went out and were able to cure in the name of the Lord. So this shows that their faith is waning. This shows that they're struggling, even though Christ has already presented them within the feeding of the 5,000 with these baskets, these 12 baskets of broken pieces reminding them that it is their job to share the gifts of God with the world. They're struggling, as we all struggle. And that's why Christ has this lament, O faithless and perverse generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? He's not saying this is a chastisement of the people. Rather, he's identifying the reality that's in front of them. He desires for all of us to be able to live a life in him. And yet, there's a recognition here that it's all too easy for us to fall short of the kingdom. And yet, our shortcomings don't hinder us from true healing. As we see Jesus say immediately afterwards, bring your son here. And they bring the boy to him. He has this response where the spirit tears at him and convulses him. And so Jesus rebukes the unclean spirit. Jesus rebukes the oppressive force that is within him. 
and the boy is healed. There's faithlessness at play. We see the faithlessness of his father, who is questioning the apostles. We see the faithlessness of the apostles, who are unable to heal the boy. And yet, in spite of all of that, Jesus still offers healing and offers cleansing to this child. In the same way, he offers healing and elevation to each and every one of us, regardless of how far we might have fallen off track. He is constantly there. He is constantly offering us the opportunity to return to him, to return to the home of the Father. And yet, we still have free will. We still have the ability to reject that offer, to not be able to see that offer in front of us. And yet, we're called to constantly reorient. That's the process of repentance. Repentance is this reorientation of the whole being towards God. But the only way that we can begin that process is to have an authentic desire to know, love, and serve Christ. Have a desire to understand who he is and what it is he's calling us towards. And it's through building that relationship with Jesus that our sins become on display. Through building that relationship with Jesus that we have a true measuring stick to compare the way that we're living our life to. And then after we start to build that relationship, a process that continues for every second of every day, well, as we continue that process, well, then we reorient, then we repent. Because we know who we're comparing ourselves to. We know how then to return to him. And we know that he's constantly offering us this possibility of a life in him and eternity within his father. So moving on to ver well, the second half of verse 43. But while they're all marveling at everything he did, he said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them that they should not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about the saying. So what we see here is the second prediction of Jesus' death, and it comes immediately after this faithlessness that's shown from the apostles. So he says to them, as they're all marveling at the mighty act that he's done in liberating this boy from the unclean spirit, let these words sink into your ears. He's planting the seed in them. He's telling them, be attentive. This is going to be very important information for you to take in because all of these things are about to be made manifest. For the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men. Yet we see they don't understand the saying. We see that it was concealed from them, in a sense, because the time has not yet come. And so, even though they're not ready to perceive these things, the seed has been planted. These words are sunken into their ears, in a sense. And it's so that way, as we've mentioned multiple times here, because this is a motif within this chapter over and over again, 
the apostles and the followers of Christ, us sitting here today, we are all called to be participants in this life in Christ. Yet what that entails is not made fully manifest to us. It's not fully understood until we have that experience of the resurrection, until we have that experience of the risen Lord. Because before then, we don't have a concept of eternal life. Before then, we don't have a concept of humanity living a life perfectly in the Holy Trinity. But through Christ offering his life for the life of the world, through the Son of Man being delivered into the hands of men, salvation has come into the world. Possibility of us being able to receive eternity has now been made manifest. But as Jesus mentioned earlier, we need to be able to take up our cross daily and follow him to be true participants in this. Because this is the call that he's not only making of us, but that he's embodying in his ministry. And that's why we have the second reminder to the apostles after this mighty act has been done. So moving on to verse 46. And an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But when Jesus perceived the thoughts of their hearts, he took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. So there's an argument growing among the followers. And what we see here is they're continuing the missed mark. They're continuing the fall short because this argument is about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And so we see this desire for status even creeping in with the followers of Christ. Yet Jesus perceiving that they have this in their hearts, that they're pondering these things, because again, he's not hearing them have this debate. Rather, he's sensing, he's, he's reading their hearts in the sense. He sees that this is what they have. They have this blockage. They have this, this hang-up. And so he takes this as another teaching moment. And so he calls a child into the midst of them. And he says, whoever receives the child in my name receives me. So he's aligning himself with this child. And for context, within the first century here, a child isn't seen with the same value that we see children as today. We see children as our future. We treasure them. We cherish them. And yet within this first century context, children were seen rather as property. They couldn't take care of themselves, and so they're seen as useless until they're able to be strong enough and old enough to help in whatever way that they can around the village. So it's a rather radical thing for Jesus to bring this small child into the midst of his apostles and then say to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Because he's fully aligned himself with the most lowly example of a human being that he could possibly pull up. And he's continually done this throughout his entire ministry, aligning himself with lepers, aligning himself with sinners. He's showing that the lowly are elevated in him. 
But then he says that he whoever receives um, me receives him who sent me. So if we receive these children, if we receive the lowly, if we receive Christ, well, we're receiving participation in the kingdom of God. Because we see here at the very end of the section, he who is least among you all is the one who is greatest. So Christ is continuing to flip the script. We're not called to live elevated lives from a worldly perspective. Rather, we're called to lower ourselves to be servants of all. Because that is what Christ has come to do. That's what Christ has been doing in his ministry. And so we are called to do likewise. So moving on to verse 49. John answered, Master, we saw a man casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him, because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not forbid him, for he that is not against you is for you. So within these two verses, what we see is that John comes up to Jesus, and he says, Master, we saw somebody casting out demons in your name that isn't with us, so we forbade him. We told him, no, stop doing that because you're not a follower of Jesus. But Jesus responds by saying, don't forbid him, because he that is not against you is for you. This is an example of how potent our actions are compared to our words. Because if we say that we're followers of Christ and yet do not act in a way that's Christ-like, well, then our words are empty. But we see here in the example of this person who is acting Christ-like and yet does not know Jesus, does not follow Jesus, that even though he does not know Jesus, he does not have this full experience of God, he's embodying these characteristics. He's living a Christ-like life. And you know them by their fruits. You see the fruits of his labor. Because he's casting out demons. So he's exercising these unclean spirits in the name of Christ, even though he's not a follower of Christ. For this to actually take place, faith needs to be at play. Embodied faith needs to be at play. And this is, again, our inkling that Christ is calling all of humanity to him regardless of if we understand it or not. A common trend that we see of people entering the church now is having this inkling that there's got to be something more to life. We go through all of our various philosophies and rabbit holes on the internet, and eventually we wind up in a place where we're confronted by the church. We're confronted by Christ. Maybe it's a process of elimination. Maybe it's this yearning being made manifest in us. But regardless of how it plays out, ultimately what we see is we're all being called in the same direction, whether we realize it or not. We're being called in that direction even from our mother's womb. And so if we live a Christ-centered life and we don't even realize it, well, we are still allowing for Christ to be made manifest in our life. 
It's a higher calling for Christians because we know the gift we have been given. And so we're then called not only to be participants in that Christ-centered life, but we're called to share that life with those who have not yet experienced it. So this is me saying that what we see here is John has a base reaction of saying, okay, this guy isn't following Jesus. We've signed our life onto him. We're following him. We're following him to the very end. We've left all to follow Jesus. So they're very protective of him. They love their master. And so when they see this other person casting out demons in his name and yet he's not following him, well, there's offense taken here. And that's understandably so, because we do the same thing if we saw somebody taking the name of Christ for granted and yet doing these mighty works. But what Jesus is telling him in his answer here is not to forbid him because he is embodying what it means to be a Christian. He's truly carrying his cross even though he doesn't realize it, even though he hasn't been given the gift that is offered to all the followers of Jesus. And what that indicates is that, well, maybe if he's embodying this Christ-centered life, if he's doing these mighty acts, well, with time, he'll have the revelation of who Jesus is. With time, he'll be able to fully grasp what it is he's already been living. And in like manner, if we come into the church later in life, or if we have a rediscovery of our faith, or regardless of what stage we may be in in our struggle towards the kingdom, our struggle towards knowing, loving, and serving God. It's through our actions that we participate in this life in Christ. It's through our actions that we make the words that we're taking in, the gospel, the good news of his victory over death, manifest within the world. But ultimately, if we're not embodying those words, if we're not living those words, on the words of St. Paul, we're a banging cymbal, we're a noisy gong. If we're empty, we ring a hollow. So if we do not match the actions of what we're called towards with the words that are coming out of our mouth, then we're totally missing the point. And this is what Jesus is saying to St. John apostle and all of us subsequently here in these two short verses so moving on to verse 51 when days drew near for him to be received up he set his face to go to jerusalem and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered the village of the samaritans to make ready for him but the people would not receive him because his face was set towards jerusalem and when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to bid fire come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. So what we see here is a shift in the narrative. We see when the days drew near for him to be received up, that is, for him to be taken up, to be ascended upon the cross. This is, again, the motif of ascension, because... He will then, at the end of St. Luke's account, ascend into heaven. And at the beginning of Acts, he will also have this narrative repeated. 
when the time came for all of this to start to take place, Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem. So he knows that the time is coming. He's not going to dilly-dally. He's not going to go into Gentile territories anymore. Rather, he's going to march towards Jerusalem. And we're going to see a shift in his teaching because his teaching is preparatory. His teaching will now shift to directing people to what has com- is coming. We see this narrative shift in all of the synoptic gospels when the transfiguration takes place. Because the transfiguration is that first image of the resurrection, the resurrected Lord that we see. And what we see here is he sends messengers ahead of him. And he sends James and John to the Samaritans, so they're not Jews. And he asks for them to make ready for him, so they make a place for him. And yet they're rejected. And the reason that they're rejected is because his face is set towards Jerusalem. There's a conflict between Jews and Samaritans. They worship the same God, but they worship him in different places, and that's only a very tiny tip of the iceberg of reasons why there was conflict between the two groups. And yet, since Jesus' eyes are set towards Jerusalem, he's rejected by this group of people, this group of Yahweh believers. And James and John, the sons of thunder, as we remember what their nickname is, Boanerges, they see this and they say to him, Lord, do you want us to bid fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Do you want us to eliminate these people who did not receive you? And yet Jesus here turns to them and rebukes them. The line is not here, but the reason why he's rebuking them is because the Son of Man has not come to take life, but rather to grant us eternal life. Even though these people have rejected Jesus in this moment, well, it's leading towards a higher purpose. Because again, his eyes are set towards Jerusalem. This is his goal now. His goal is not to dilly-dally. His goal is not to be in one place for a prolonged period of time. Rather, he's going to move on to Jerusalem, all the while predicting and teaching us what is to come. And this is why he corrects his apostles. Again, this motif keeps coming up within this chapter at the end of all of these sections where they kind of grasp what's going on, But then, in the same vein, they totally miss the mark. And yet, Jesus, as a loving, compassionate teacher, continues to reorient them. And sometimes he needs to yell at them. Sometimes he needs to use more radical means. Sometimes he uses more uh, parables to be able to reorient them. Regardless of the method that he's using, he's tooling his response to the needs of his followers. Because his ultimate desire is for them to fully grasp who he is so they can live a life in him. And it's his desire that we do the same. So moving on to the final section, verse 57. As they were going along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. 
But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But he said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Here we have three would-be followers of Jesus. And as Jesus is along the road, as he's aiming towards Jerusalem and proceeding on his way, this man comes up to him and says, I'll follow you wherever you go. And yet Jesus responds to him by saying, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus has lived this life of poverty that we saw already talked about from the apostles because the apostles are called to live the same life. This is not the calling of everybody, yet this is the way that this calling is made manifest for the apostles of Christ. And yet, this is also something that all Christians need to be willing to take on. God forbid we wind up in a situation where we ourselves lack homes, where we ourselves lack basic necessities. Yet this man falls away. And the reason why he falls away because even though he says with his words, I'll follow you wherever you go, he's not fully willing to live this life detached from the physical means of this world. And this is the way that Christ is calling him to live if he wants him to truly follow him. In the second example that we have here, Jesus comes up to a man, he says to him, follow me. But the man's response is, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But he says to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. This may seem like a very harsh correspondence between the two. It's a noble thing to, especially within a Jewish context, bury your parent. In fact, that is something within the Torah, within the law, that is required for somebody to honor his father or his mother. Yet what Jesus is saying here is he's painting for us the picture of the division that will happen in him. Because if we live a life in Christ, if we live a life of eternal eternity within the Messianic age, in those who, through blood, we are closest with, are not willing to do the same and rather try to hinder us from doing that? Well, then the response that Jesus has, which is a rather harsh one, is let the dead bury their own dead. Because if you are trying to live this life in me, then you're choosing to be able to live a life as the manifestation of eternal life. We need to take this very seriously, and we need to think about this critically, because this isn't an excuse for us to say, okay, well, I have some familial struggles, so I'm going to just 
blindly cut ties with everybody because, yeah, my get-out-of-jail-free card is that uh, you don't really go to church all that often, so I guess I'm able to wash my hands of you. That's not the case at all. But if we're at a point where there is an utter hindrance from those who are even closest to us that is hindering us from being able to be full participants in this life in Christ. Well, the radical example that Jesus is painting for us is that it is better for you to cut those ties and follow me and preach the gospel than for you to dwell in symbolically the land of the dead. And we see this again play out within the final section here. Because the last person says, I'll follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those in my house. What this is symbolic of is there's still something holding him back. It's a noble thing to want to tell your kinsmen where you're going and what you're doing. Yet, Clearly, in Jesus' response here, of no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Clearly, in the statement, there's something else holding him back. There's something else holding this person back from being able to live this full life in Christ. Because he's now lacking this momentum. If you've ever tried to push a plow, it takes a lot of momentum and a lot of strength to be able to do it. In fact, you would typically have a donkey or something carrying that plow and dragging it along the way so you could do all that you need to do with it. But the momentum's important. And if you're looking back, if you're not pushing forward, well then, all that will take place is that you'll hit a rock or the ground will become too tough and you're going to no longer be able to maintain that speed, to maintain that process. So in these three things that Jesus is mentioning here that could hold us back, what we see is if we live for the things of this age, that is, if we live for wealth, status, you name it, well then, we're not able to obtain true life. That doesn't mean that material things are bad, but we need to ask ourselves, well, what is at the core of our desire for life? Is it to acquire things? Is it to acquire status? Or is it for us to use the things and use the status that we acquire through life towards the glory of God? Well, now we got to think about the relationships that we have in our life. Are those relationships allowing for us to be able to live a life in Christ? Are we all striving to be participants in this life in Christ together? Mutually offering ourselves for the other? Or are they one-directional relationships? Are they not relationships at all, or rather hindrances that are dragging us down and causing us to live as those who are dead? That may seem like a radical example, but yet how many people deal with that reality in their life? A relationship requires relation. There's give and there's take. And if the relationship, at least the image of God's relationship with us, is anything for us to use as an example of how we're supposed to relate not only with one another, but ultimately to him, 
Well, the image that's painted by Christ and his actions of how he relates to us is radically self-sacrificial. He offers everything, including his life, for us willingly. And in like manner, we're called to do the same towards him. But we're not only called to do the same in our relationship to Christ. We're called to do the same in our relationships with one another. And that's how we build each other up rather than tearing each other down. If we help those who are in need, regardless of our relation to them, well then we're making Christ manifest in their life. We're making a sacrifice of ourself. And this is something that needs to be done willingly. We need to seriously ask ourselves the questions of, am I willing to make the sacrifice that I feel compelled to make? Because if there's a part of you that isn't fully invested in making that sacrifice, well then you're just sacrificing another part. The whole of you isn't moving in that direction. So we can go around and say, okay, I'm trying to help people, I'm trying to do X, Y, or Z, but if you're not fully invested, well then you're not being of benefit in the long run. Because all that you're doing is fragmenting yourself. All that you're doing is maybe trying to validate some need that you have in reaching out to another person. So the icon of how we're supposed to offer ourselves to others is in Christ. Because he willingly offers the whole of himself for the life of the world. And then the final section, what we see here, we can't turn back. We can't have presuppositions or thoughts that detach us from Christ, that kill our momentum. Rather, if we're going to follow after Jesus, we need to ask ourselves these questions. We need to continually examine ourselves to see, are we truly striving to live a life in Christ? Are we truly desiring to know, love, and serve him in whatever way that he's calling each of us uniquely to do so? If we look at how we live, if we even think about how we think, we're very complex creatures. There's a lot that's baked into the cake. There's a lot that's going on internally that we might not even be aware of. And yet we're constantly called to strive towards consciousness. We're constantly called to strive towards being the whole of who we are. Yet that requires work. That requires patience. And ultimately, that requires love. Because if we don't have love at the center of all of this, then yeah, we're going to live for material gain. If we don't have love at the center of our relationships, then yeah, we're going to put ourselves in toxic situations that we know are destroying us, and yet our understanding of love is going to be so fragmented that we stay there. And if we don't have love in our desire to form ourselves in the image of Christ and strive towards him, well then, that lack of love will be a hindrance for us. That lack of love will kill that momentum. So love needs to be at the center. 
and it's through love, which is manifested self-sacrificially, as we see in the saving acts of Christ on the cross, that we will be able to be made followers of him. So thank you all for listening to this session of our St. John the Baptist Bible study, Make His Path Straight. Christos Nesti, Christ is risen. Until next time, we'll talk to you all later. Thank you all for listening to this session of Make His Path Straight, a St. John the Baptist Bible study. Just as a reminder, the point of this Bible study is to invite each of you to gain a deeper appreciation and understanding of the scriptures. So in the coming week, I invite you to take some time to read over the text we have just delved into, to see for yourself the depth of meaning that can be presented to us. If you're interested in the sources I'm using for the study, links to the full list of pertinent books can be found in the description of the session. Last but not least, as we've been discussing in the Bible study, the scriptures are not separated from our lived tradition as Orthodox Christians. So if you'd like to gain a deeper understanding of what it is to participate in these texts and live a life that Christ calls us to live in the scriptures, I invite each of you listening to join our St. John the Baptist community here in Boston South End each Sunday for Orthros starting around 8.30 a.m. and the Divine Liturgy starting around 9.45 a.m. If you don't live in the Boston area, no worry. I've also linked in the bio the directory of Greek Orthodox churches as a resource so that you can find Orthodox churches near you. As always, thank you for listening, and may St. John the Forerunner give us strength as we all set out to draw near to Christ and make his path straight. Amen.